Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. So I just feel like fair warning. Um, people should know this is just uh, this is just going to be kind of a downer. <laughs> like, what? well, I mean, I just we're going to talk about what we need to talk about, and like, I think ultimately there's a there's a digging deep for hope and I have hope um and I and I have a resistant joy but also um I I just don't think that we can we're not going to ignore everything that's happening in the world and like I can't be super like quippy about it because sometimes things happen that are just wrong but on some level they're just kind of ridiculous and so we can just kind of um, resist by mocking and like this isn't that so I, I don't know so if you I, I I can just get it if people are like I can't take one more hard like heavy thing then probably I get it <laughs> like this sure this is going to be heavy well let me start off with something light before we get into <laughs> we, can heavy. you tell that we don't discuss these things beforehand <laughs> we don't yeah. well um you know Two weeks ago, I tested positive for COVID, uh, my wife and I, and um, our eight-year-old, Matthew. And um, you know, we at first took the home test, and my wife took hers first. And when you take the home test, you know, you do the nose swab, and um, you put it in the solution, and you're supposed to wait for about three minutes. And hers took about two minutes and 50 seconds before it, you know, kind of faintly showed mm-hmm. positive, and she confirmed that with her doctor when I took the test I mean within like 10 seconds it was like very clear positive and immediately when my wife saw it she said you know this is God (laughs) now as a husband you know I I just did the husband thing and played dumb like I knew what she was talking about but I was like wait what, what do you mean she's like you know what I mean this is God's doing I was like what are you talking about? She's like, God has been trying to tell you to slow down, to rest, and you've not been listening. And so God is going to make your butt rest. And she was right. She was right. Uh, the, the past two weeks um, recovering from COVID have been a time of soul searching. It's been a time of needed overdue rest. Um, as I said on the walk, I've been reading a book uh, called The Deeply Formed Life, and there's a, it's a chapter on Sabbath rest. And I have been reminded over the past couple of weeks of the idolatry of seeking to produce all the time, the idolatry mm-hmm. of seeking to make a name for yourself, to become somebody. And... You know, I'm embarrassed to say that that I have fallen into that. Um, and I say, as a matter of fact, I said it just a few minutes ago before we recorded this podcast, uh, quoting the words of Jesus, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I realized that I apply that a lot to other people, and I rarely apply it to myself and my own life. And I'm, by the grace of God, coming back to the grace the faith that it takes to rest and trust God with things that are not done. And that, and for some people that may sound like a big 
duh. Um, but for me and my overworking self, uh, it, it it's been a real wrestling match. And I'm not, I'm I'm not it, even to talk about this is so opposite of how I usually live, move, and have being in the world. You know, as an introverted person, I am usually very intentional about alone time, about quiet time, about prayer time. But during COVID, I just got into a work mode. And these past two weeks were the first weeks since the beginning of the pandemic that I have not preached or led worship. Um, I have not taken every Sunday that the church has been in person, I have been there and I haven't taken a Sunday off. Even when I wasn't preaching, I showed up just to set up the, the audio visual equipment to lead worship. And again, this may sound like a big duh to people, uh, but for me, I, the Lord had to bring me back to the reality once again that if I'm not present, the world keeps on spinning, the church mm-hmm. keeps on churching, and though you know God has gifted me with certain wonderful and great gifts, I am not needed. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's so hard. I, I recently, a couple months ago, I, I felt really well. We were preaching through those seven marks of mature faith um, in the. Um, Pete Scazzaro book and one of them was about limits and so I was preaching about limits and um and I just felt really led to say from the pulpit which is one of the scariest things I've ever said from the pulpit which is I do not work too hard for this church Mm. I do not work too hard for the grove I and I you know it feels like it's so deeply ingrained in me that if you love someone, something, and you care, you will work yourself past the point of exhaustion. And if you rest, um, then that just means you're not very committed, and that the people who are closest to the Holy Spirit are the people who, like, have this passion and urgency in them that can never and. Obviously, that's not the witness of Scripture, since Jesus being the actual Son of God, God Almighty on earth, you can't question um, the passion or commitment, and yet he was often slipping away um, to rest and to pray and not doing every single thing that could have been done. But that cult of productivity is so deep in me and so deeply entwined in my understanding of who Jesus is calling me to be that to say to my church publicly I don't work too hard I mean it it feels so scary it feels like it will open this door to people saying like oh so what you're really saying is you don't you're not you're not being faithful to us and um and I and I, it was funny because last week I was talking to a friend who used to be in Charlotte um, when we were both in youth pastor positions here. Um, we did a lot of collaboration stuff between our churches. And she said, um, as I reflect back on those years, and this might not seem true to you, but to me, I think that maybe we were overworking. And I was like, I mean, yes. Because I, um, I really felt like that was the only way that I could 
show the community that I loved them and that I believed what I believed. And now I, I don't think that I was working efficiently. I think I probably, you know, I would have been more fruitful had I been observing the rituals of rest um, and accepting and really embracing and being thankful for my limits. But I just, um, and I should just be even more honest, I think it's an ego thing, right? Like you want to be the person that people think like, wow, this whole community is so different since she's here, since he's here. And what did we do without him? And what will we do? I mean, like, and I think that's what's so hard is to have a faith that is not I mean, you talk about this all the time, like Jesus as the Red Bull that gives you wings to make you awesome. Or do you have the kind of faith where your faith decenters yourself and centers Jesus, in which case people are not really so in love with you. They're more deeply in love with Jesus and more deeply experiencing themselves as beloved. And that's just a really, I mean, I don't know. I am not an introvert and I... (laughs) Like my ego um, just puts up a a very big fight and um, it's really hard to exist in the middle of a community and say like, actually, I'm not saying I'm nothing, but I'm not the thing. I'm not the thing. And what is this vitality and springing up that's all around us? It is not because of me. And to continually keep centering, like keep decentering yourself is a really hard ego crucifying task. Um, and I think we need to, you know, we need to go first, um, to, to do that work, but it's really, it's really hard. It's really hard to rest. Well, the biggest place of, um, encouragement and conviction for me over the past couple of weeks was coming back to the Exodus story and, and, and seeing once again, that the commandment, um, to rest on the Sabbath was given after the Israelites had been rescued from slavery and that mm-hmm. this identity of constantly having to work is slavery. And of course, as an African-American, I deeply connect with this idea of being forced into labor. And so uh, God gives them this command to rest as 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 a grace, as say, no, this is not your identity, this slavery that you've been in, that you're now out of, there, there, there are components of it that are still operating in your heart and mind. And we're going to work that out by resting on the Sabbath. Yeah. And I do think that, you know, just a huge, I mean, I think we all live, well, not everyone who listens to this podcast, but you and I and the people in our congregation live in America, in the United States. And so one of the huge dominant cultural idols and cultural worship is productivity, right? It is achievement. Um, and the other is violence. And I think there's a, there's an intertwining in there in some way, um, that we could probably tease out over time, but you know, just this idea that I, I mean, I think both of at the heart of both of those, ideologies both of those religions is a um is is being your own god right like i will make myself great Mm -hmm. and i will keep myself safe and i will protect those who are worthy 
and I will destroy those who are not. And so to, to be able to rest and to take Sabbath and to have the discipline to leave things undone is this visceral embodied practice of saying, no, I am not God. God is God. Um, and I, I think that's a really, it's a deeply hard thing to do. And I other think, I also think one of the reasons that resting is so hard, and I think about this a lot, is that I genuinely do not know at this point in my life what is enough. And, and, and not in terms of possessions, although I struggle there too, but like what is enough work? Like what is the right amount of work? Because to be honest, I mean, this is not, I mean, this is the great gift of this life is that it is not a job. And so I don't feel like, well, I've done my 40 hours for Jesus and now I'm clocking out. Like my, my world is very integrated, right? Like I am not just, just the pastor of the church. I am a member of this faith community. And so sometimes when I'm doing things, I'm doing them as the pastor. And sometimes when I'm doing things, I'm doing them because this is my, you know, this is what I want to do as part of the faith community that I'm a part of in following the Lord. And so, you know, I, I, we think about what is enough in terms of like counting hours. And I do think that that's not like, it's not that simple because, because the lines in my, in our lives as pastors are not that clean. Um, and I think for a long time I thought like, well, people in my community, if, if the most committed person in my community is around whatever, 10 to 15 hours a week on a, on a giving volunteer basis, then I want to make sure that I'm around 60 hours a week because I have whatever, like I want to. And, and so it's just really hard to, um, it's just really hard to figure that out because, because I genuinely have concern about when I say that, okay, I'm not working too hard. Then immediately my anxiety goes to, well, am I not working hard enough? Mm -hmm. And I, and I think it's because there's no, in the context of this larger culture, none of us can tell anymore what is enough when it comes to work. None of us can tell what is enough when it comes to possessions. None of us can tell what is enough when it comes to having a healthy body. Like our, our ability to discern is so warped by all of the messages that we're bombarded with at all times. It's really, really difficult to rightly perceive what these rhythms of work and rest should be. So Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. So what's astonishing you? Well, I I mean I don't know what I, I the point of this the point of this question is to be intentional about discerning the beauty and presence of God in our lives. Um, and so I deeply like that's hard work. Um, and there are some really beautiful things, particularly that I see God doing in my community that I just can't talk about yet. So I don't want to say that this is the only, there are really, there are beautiful things that are like uplifting stories that I just can't share right now. But I mean, honestly, how can anybody be thinking anything else than 
you know, we just recorded this podcast last week talking about the mass shooting in Buffalo. And I think as we were recording it, the massacre of the school children in Uvalde was happening. And I, you know, we can't, I, we, I can't, I mean, I, you know, and I know you too, like we have children, we have school children. And so it's this level of having obviously, um, just extreme horrified compassion towards the people in that community. And also this sense of like, we are sending our children into school buildings that look just like those buildings and trying to navigate what being a faithful parent looks like and, and how do you love and care for your own children and then leveling on top of that. Okay. What, what is the word that we have for our congregations in response to all of this? And, and I think what is so difficult right now is honestly, like I'm, I'm reading a lot about it and I'm seeking out more information but emotionally, I feel very detached from this. And I, and I, that is horrifying to me that, you know, remembering my like fully integrated emotional and spiritual and response to what happened in Newtown and just recognizing that 10 years later, you know, these massacres happen and I can choose to, um, like center that story in my life as a way of like honoring and bearing witness. But emotionally I can't even attach to it anymore because it is, it is not a shock. I, I mean, and I also think like, you know, there's on some deep level, like our, our hearts are protecting us from the, horror of what happened because we know that we have to continue to you know live and work and be in this world um but I you know I feel like the church um the the body of Christ has to have a response to this and I'm astonished that as you know like it's very rare that something happens that I don't immediately have a reaction to it. And I don't, and I, I don't. And I think what I have more is, um, and I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm just being truthful. I, I'm so aware that, that, um, every response is so deeply inadequate. Like I know that it is faithful to lament. Um, but I also just, know that for us as a people of faith, that's not like a psychological process to try to move us through to make it better. Um, and I think if you're numb to it, you, you can't lament because it's just becomes like virtue signaling and performance. And I know that to take action is deeply faithful, but I see the church often talking about taking action, at least in the quote progressive, and I hate that label, but the progressive part of the church taking action is completely centered around, um, political action, right? So write your Congress people or do, you know, and I, 
And it's not that I think that people, that that's not a faithful response, but I do think as, as people of faith, and this is, this is, this is scary to say out loud because I, I feel like it is borrowing a line from an ideology that I don't believe in, like the pro gun lobby, which I don't, I, I, I'm abhorrently reject, but I do think as people of faith, we have to respond spiritually, which is to say, you know, um, we can't just have contempt and call out the wrongness of people who are, you know, secular or religious people who are not acting in ways that we think are appropriate in response to this tragedy, but to really recognize that, you know, um, the spirit of violence and redemptive violence has really deeply infiltrated the body of Christ. And our response to that can't be to scapegoat or otherize or demonize people who have been possessed by that really dangerous lie, but to really see ourselves as missionaries and um, as called to do evangelism to sort of say like, these are our brothers and sisters who really are possessed by this understanding of who Jesus is and what the good life is that their, their faith is in the power of these weapons to destroy instead of the revelation of Jesus on the cross and God emptying the tomb. And so we can't just retreat to our enclaves and, and talk about, let's get some good people elected. I mean, that's fine as an, as citizen, that's a fine response, but as a person of faith, like what is our spiritual response to what is happening? And by that, I don't mean let's comfort people. That's part of it. But to say, when are we going to get serious about saying like people are dying because of what they believe in and we have a story of an alternative belief system and we need, I think, to be to be really intentional about first, how do we make sure that you can have a visceral reaction to I'm against massacring people and I and I don't I'm uncomfortable around guns. That's great. But not liking guns and not liking massacres is not the same thing as seeing and loving the way of Christ. So how do we make sure that people in our own communities understand not just what they're against, but what they're for? And and that loving Jesus and the way of Jesus is not about playing the odds and hoping your kid's school doesn't get shot up. It's about saying we have an alternative way of confronting evil in the world and and if as is so often I see people identifying evil as those whatever those evangelical white supremacists over there then our response as people who love Jesus is not to hate them or to have contempt for them or to separate ourselves from them but to move towards and serve them with love and you know I, I think that's that's a huge like we're just not even doing that work of saying, of course, I want to center the victims of this tragedy. I do. And I, and it's not about wanting to center whiteness, but it's wanting to say, 
people are captive to this ideology that is deeply destructive. And the only way that we're going to stop the destruction is to go and rescue people. Um, and, and a lot of those are people who very much think that they already are um, loving God. And certainly they, and that, that is true. And they know that they're loved by God, but just like, you know, you can still be like Saul on the road to Damascus and be loved by God and know God and yet be caught up in a cultural system that is masked with religiosity that is actually resisting and resisting what God is doing in the world and just and and destroying physically God's own beloved so I just I'm astonished by what happened and I'm astonished also by how like but where is the intentional deeply spirit formed response to hey for such a time as this we are called well, the Hebrew prophets remind us that uh, when tragedy befalls a nation, that it's not about them and what they are doing. It's us. We are at fault. And the prophets called the nations, the nation to repentance. Um, and I'm also reminded by the prophets that often when there was sin in the land that caused uh, tragedy to befall the nation, it was often because of some kind of deception they believed a lie right so at some point they stopped believing that the god of abraham isaac and jacob was enough the god the holy one of israel was enough and so they felt like they needed to add baal worship Moloch, right or Asherah, yeah. so yeah, yeah the god of abraham is great but just in case you know there's this fertility god over here there's this goddess over here and so they fell into a deception which caused great harm to the nation and the prophets had to say hey it's not it's not those people <laughs> it's all of us we must repent and so i think one of the things that you're pointing to is that there just needs to be a nationwide uh, repentance that we have fallen under the deception of redemptive violence we are at fault and when there is lots of talk about them, and there should be some talk about them. Uh, but if it's all about them and what they are doing, that that is misguided. And I, I think you are right about that, in that we have not yet seen um, a, a Christ-centered way um, uh, in this situation. And I would also add in this, um, as, as an African-American, it, it it's interesting for me to watch interviews on the news uh, featuring um, white parents who are uh, particularly disturbed by uh, shootings in schools and their, their legitimate fear for their children. And one of, one of my personal messages is, welcome to my world. Right. I mean, this kind of, of, of threat is what we live with as people of color in this country and so th this this sense of hey this could happen this could come to our house this could come to our school this could come to our grocery store this this is not some distant tragedy that happens overseas we we live with this sense of the threat of violence right. uh, w w and which causes all kinds of 
mental, emotional, spiritual damage, of course. Um, and I am hopeful, prayerful that this, that this pain that we feel will be um, the beginning of, of the awakening, uh, that, uh, that, that, that the ouch will be strong enough for us to say, okay, what we're doing, this way isn't working. Yeah, I mean, I think two things in response. Um, it just occurs to me, though, I mean, I see this in my own life, and I have a good friend who will sometimes, I, I'll be talking about like a, a situation that I'm caught up in or, or a pattern I see repeating in my own life, and I will say, I, you know, oh, I, I do X, Y, and Z. And, and my friend, who is a life coach, will be like, it's great to know that knowing it doesn't fix anything, mm. right? And so I just feel like, it, but but it can give us the illusion that like, oh, I see it, or especially, I mean, as a preacher, as a person who likes to talk, like saying something can feel so cathartic yeah. that then you can feel like, oh, okay, I did my thing. I said something. I real, I had a revelation. I realized something. And and to just sort of recognize that that's, that is not nothing, but that's actually not anything. <laughs> and, and, and so I think right now there's a lot of talk and I think, you know, we need to talk to each other and we need to talk about things and that's fine. But what we need to be wary of is having an emotional catharsis that makes us think that we're finished when really that is the point where we start. And then I see again, this idea that we see so clearly what other people are doing wrong and that is whatever. I mean, Jesus saying that, you know, the speck and the beam or whatever. And I think, you know, to the extent that you see clearly what X, Y, or Z group is doing wrong, you just, I think we need to say, well, it's not my job to repent of someone else's sins. Yes. So show, show me Lord, what, what is my, like, what am I doing that is as grievous to you as I can clearly see that what they're doing is grievous to you. And even when we see what they're doing is wrong, we still see only in a mirror dimly. Right. We, we still, there's just so much more that we need to see and learn, not only about them, but about us as well. But I do just think the ending of our souls is so <laughs> crafty at saying like, well, sure, you theoretically have a problem, but sure, you theoretically are a sinner. Like, sure, you, in a perfect world, need to repent. But look at those people. Like, the, you know, and I, so to say like, I, I really, if I can see clearly that those people, whoever they are, need to repent, then really what that means is I have something that I need to repent of and my own sin and complicity is hidden from me. And, and will I do that, um, that work of ego crucifixion of saying, you know, I, I am as much of the problem as the person I most deeply abhor and I need to be more interested in seeing your kingdom come than in protecting my ego. Um, I, I'm reminded of, um, I think it's an interview with Martin Luther King Jr. And I think he was being asked about his strategy, uh, especially as uh, the NAACP was seeking to have certain laws changed. And uh, King said, the law changing the law can keep you from lynching me but it can't make you love me and I think you're exactly right that we can respond 
with simply political solutions, and there, there's a place for that, but you're right, we, we need a spiritual solution, and perhaps, um, perhaps the tools are already in our hands, and we just don't value them. I'm right. thinking of that, that story where the disciples are trying to cast out a demon, and they can't, and they go to Jesus, and like, yeah, uh, you got to pray. Yeah, Jesus, these, this comes out by prayer and fasting. Like we have these spiritual tools, but we don't value them enough. We don't think that they are powerful enough right. for this work. They, we think that they might make us nice people, make us pious Christians, but we really don't think that they are effective in the kind of warfare that we're we're engaged in. I was going to say because I think the reality is we 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 do. I mean, we do have a solution and that is um calling people to the way of Jesus and I think that, you know, and that's not the same as saying we don't have a skin problem, we have a sin problem, we don't have a gun problem, we have a people problem. I'm saying like, yeah, that means that if we are fully committed to the way of Jesus, then we start making some self-giving sacrificial decisions to bear witness to the values of the kingdom of God. So it does not mean that my highest aspiration is to make sure that not, you know nobody gets pregnant out of wedlock and my kids graduate from college. It means I start doing things like making choices about where I live and and what I how I form my kids and what risks I take and what which ways I choose to indulge myself and where I show up and put my body on the line especially as a person with white skin right to say to say our our um gift to the world is faith in Jesus Christ is not a cop out that says I'm just going to buy mugs with Christian slogans on them and say I'm done it's to say like no this is going to require deeper commitment from you than from someone who's just willing to have an AK-15 in their house, right? And so I, I think, um, because what I see happening, and I, and I feel it in myself, I'm resisting it in myself, is there's just this deep sense of like, well, it's never going to change. And I see that happening ev everywhere. And while I think it's really important that the people who follow Jesus are not optimistic and not not optimistic about human nature and not optimistic about human institutions it is really important that we continue to say like no we do have hope not in ourselves and not in a plan that we can conceive with our own craftiness and not in our institutions and not only a hope for an elite few like us who managed to play the odds well or hope for life after death. But we have hope here and now that the way of Jesus is still wild and untamed and contagious. And the way that Jesus has changed our hearts and our values, that didn't happen because we're special. That happened because that's what the gospel does. And so yeah. we become, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what to preach this past week. And I mean, I think after something like this happens, your illusion that things are okay is shattered and your illusion that you're going to be safe is shattered, but your commitment to the kingdom of God and to the beauty of Jesus 
I mean, I don't believe less in response to what happened. I believe more, right? And not in the sense of like, I believe everything is going to be okay. I mean, ultimately, like eschatologically I do, but like in my own short human life, no, I don't know. Like I have a deep amount of unknowing, but what I know is if I, I get to pick what I worship. And so when I see what happened in Uvalde, I see very clearly the fruits of the cult of individual self-worship. And, and I say whether following Jesus, quote, works or doesn't, and I certainly get a lot of people can look at what happened last week and be like, loving Jesus isn't working. But whether it works or not, I still believe wholeheartedly in the values of the kingdom of God and even more clearly want to reject the values of this culture. Even as I acknowledge I am a hypocrite, I am a sinner, I am like totally imperfect. And the closer I get to Jesus, the more clearly I see my own sin and wretchedness. So I'm not saying that my stuff doesn't stink because I know it does, but I'm saying even still, I want to stand in that line and not find a place on the wide road because the cost is, is too high. The destruction is just too evil. Yeah. These times give me um, new eyes, fresh eyes to um, read things like the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. So if you read Jesus' words, Jesus' teaching, the meek shall inherit the earth. For many years, I read that and thought, oh, what this means is that now I need to work, emphasis on work, really hard to be meek so that I can not make Jesus angry with me and go to heaven when I die. Now, in, in these times, I, I think I have a better sense of what Jesus is saying. It, it, is a, it is a promise. It is a declaration. The meek shall inherit the earth. One of the ways I stay grounded in times like this, in, in, in tragedies like the one we're talking about, um, is, is that promise. The meek shall inherit the earth because it can seem as if, oh, no, those with the biggest guns and the most money, that that that's going to have the last word. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think that understanding of meekness is saying like, look, if we embrace the way of Jesus in our current context, we are embracing a path to what looks like the bottom, Mm -hmm. what looks like the edges, marginality, vulnerability, um, you know, lack of honor and pride. Cause it's just not, it's not attractive according to the values of our culture. And so I think a meekness is about saying like, Hey, I, I am aware that the choices I am making look dumb foolish outside of the context of um, the gospel of Jesus. I'm aware of that. And I, and I'm saying I, again, I just, I want to decenter what seems like what seems as if it's in my best interest and center the way of Jesus. But honestly, it's not because I am more virtuous. I mean, what I what we know after following Jesus is 
that to do that work that looks like decentering and looks like you're working against your own best self-interest, what we know is that that's not true, that actually in choosing the way of Jesus, we are um, choosing the way that leads to abundant life. And we are walking in our own best interest. And we are not like spiritual heroes and aren't we so wonderful, but we are redeemed sinners who have been graciously welcomed onto this path. And we walk with deep humility, knowing that we have been rescued. And so just having that whole, and I guess like, that's the whole thing. Like I want to meet people in the tragedy. And I do think there's a truth in terms of which ideologies are, are contributing to the kind of just violent brokenness that we're seeing, but we cannot be making moral superior pronouncements on virtue hill because that's not i mean that's just not real and it's not helpful and and it's just reinforcing the kind of polarization and separation that are uh, is just contributing to the spirit of enmity that exists among us as opposed to the spirit of neighborness you know i hear a lot of people these days um both left and right conservative liberal saying i feel like the country's off i feel like something is wrong with the country and what usually follows is and if those people and if they rarely i was gonna say if ever do i hear someone say hey the country is off and then say it's me it's me it's me oh lord standing in the need of prayer it's i'm I'm contributing to what's wrong, and I know it. Right. Well, I think of that. There's that story about G.K. Chesterton writing, I think, in Britain, like after World War II, and they were essays that people, you know, thought leaders were supposed to contribute in answer to the question of what's wrong with this country today. And his was two words, I am. Wow. And I, I mean, I think just that sort of, because I think if what, if what I'm saying is like my self-understanding is I am a sinner, a deeply flawed and imperfect person who also was made in the image of God and has sacred worth, right? That I, I hold both of these things in tension, um, that I'm not one or another. I'm, re- I'm rejecting the dualism that is defining this age, right? I'm saying I am both fearfully and wonderfully made. I carry the divine image. God does not hate me. God does not want to throw me away like garbage. And also I am a deeply flawed sinner who is powerless over the forces that, you know, captivate my heart and mind. And I have been rescued and I can only continue to walk this way in, in wholehearted surrender and trust of a power greater than me, right? Like if I carry both of those things together, then I, I can invite someone to come and sit next to me and say, you know, because if, if you are following an ideology that is ultimately destructive, like one of the things you really resist is like you, every piece of evidence that suggests that reveals to you that this is true, you resist all of it because you can't face like, how will I live with myself if I recognize that my, you know, the things I've worshiped have not only just been, you know, harming me, but have been, are really culpable for the destruction of really vulnerable people, right? Like if someone is standing over there being like, you're horrible and I'm wonderful and you should stop being you and start being me. Like who, like that's just going to harden someone in their positions because they're fighting for their own sense of worthiness. But if, but if what we're saying in the church of Jesus Christ is like, look, I, 
I too was blind. <laughs> like yeah. I too have willfully, intentionally and unintentionally, consciously and unconsciously like chosen the chosen evil instead of good. And, and I've been rescued and now I have this life of, of freedom and peace and, and a joy that I could never have before. And, and I'm not any better than you. In fact, I, I might be substantially worse than you. But what I'm saying is, you know, life in this lifeboat is so much better. Like, come sit next to me and you don't have to hate yourself for forever. And that's just not, like, the culture war will never preach no. that message. And we can't contempt people into giving up their understanding of who they are and what good is. But what you can do is love people in, in a way that makes them think, like, how are you able to love me like this? And where's, what's the source of that love? Yes, because in the West, and, and, and you, I'm just going to restate what you just said, because I, I think it's really, really good. And I think you have put your finger on something really helpful in that in this culture war, we're basically invited into one of two sides. Right, we have very dualistic thinking in the West. So you're either this or that, left or right, and um, whatever side you're on, that ideology gets baptized as Christian. And so it's really hard to critique it from within. And what needs to happen is that people need to be offered a third way, the way of Jesus. And I do want to say, I am, I I am aware. <laughs> that a lot of times um, there's there's the spirit of both sides kind of like, well, it doesn't matter. Everybody just do what seems good in your eyes because both sides are corrupt. And I want to say like the way of Jesus is resolute. Like the Jesus is, you can't both sides, like the prison industrial complex, you can't both sides a, a criminal justice system that is unjust towards um, historically marginalized and continually marginalized people. Like oppression is not like, there is a truth, right? And and I believe that. Um, I believe that often religious leaders who have claimed to have the truth have been just like completely 100% wrong and destructive about that. But I don't think that in any way there's nuance in God's eyes towards both the person who murdered those little children or murdered those grocery shoppers. There's not nuance in God's eyes that that was an act of horrific evil or the acts that led up to that where the person had clean hands. So, you know, the people who are profiting off of selling those guns or profiting off of, um, you know, marketing ideologies and lies that inflame hate. You know, I don't, I don't think that God, that God's moral authority, I think is absolute, but what is true is that I think none of us, none of us have it. Right. So if, 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 what I know is truth. It is not because I was somehow morally superior and figured it out. There's nothing I know that hasn't been revealed to me by God. There is nothing that I have that was not given to me as a gift. And so I, you know, we have no pride because, you know, if we're right, it's to God's glory it's and grace. not to our own. And if we're wrong, it's because I'm, I'm waiting here for either the revelation of God's truth to be given to me or the healing of my ego enough so that I, but like I am vulnerable, but for the grace of God, which means when I really know that, when I know that if I'm, if I'm right, it's to the glory of God. And if it's wrong, it's because I, you know, I'm still resisting what God is doing in my life. I don't have any ego and I can't other people who are wrong because I know that I'm the same. And I think that's, you know, for all that in the PCUSA that we talk about Calvin, like we talk about Calvin 
but we don't live like we believe in the absolute grace as the defining reality. Like we live off like, and we, I hear people talk about like, oh, we're going to get a good progressive leader in there. I don't stop. I don't, this is not the thing. Like, I don't want people to be progressive. I want them to be Christ-like. I don't want people to be conservative. I want them to be Christ-like. And, you know, Jesus does not fit neatly in either of those ideologies, which aren't as absolute either as people pretend that they are. Correct. Um, so anyway, I am. Um, that's it. I, I We've just talked about what, what's astonishing us and what we're thinking about. I don't, I don't know that I have anything else to say this week at some point i think we need to talk about roe but i can't mm. i don't i don't have the heart to just even wade into that on this particular week um, well maybe the final thing we should talk about is um, what we're preaching this sunday is pentecost and this conversation reminds me of a truth that i don't often bring out on pentecost sunday but i just might this year in that um on Pentecost Sunday, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church in Acts chapter 2, God is doing the thing that God had promised to do since Genesis 3, right? The desire of God's heart, the deep desire of God's heart expressed in Scripture is to dwell with people, right? And so what we see throughout both the Old and New Testament is God making a way to dwell with people first in the tabernacle and the temple. If you were to ask a Jew in, in the Old Testament, how do you get to heaven? I mean, they would say, go to the temple. <laughs> go to the temple because God dwells there. Heaven has touched down in the temple and the tabernacle, right? So it's not die and you get, you know, beam me up, Scotty, to some distant place. It's no, heaven, God wants to dwell with his people on earth. And so we first see that in the, the tabernacle and the temple where, the, where the, the glory, the spirit of God dwells in the Holy of Holies. And then we see it uh, in Jesus when he's baptized, the spirit descends like a dove. And then Jesus says to his disciples, uh, you will see uh, angels ascending and descending upon the son of man as if to say, I am the 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 new temple right and he mm -hmm. says later destroy this temple three days i'll raise it up and people think he's talking about a building no he's talking about himself as the presence of god here and then um on on the day of pentecost as the spirit is poured out on god's people we have this um uh, this 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 moment of oh new creation this thing that God has promised since Genesis three to dwell with and even in His people is has now finally arrived, and if we talk about the kingdom of God only as some place out there distant future or up in heaven then we miss the point especially as we talk about you know things like school shootings if we understand the kingdom if we understand heaven to be invading earth through the ministry of Jesus and now uh, the, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, well, that changes everything because it does say very clearly, oh, it is, it is this kingdom reality. It's this new creation that has the last word. This is the mustard seed that is taking over the earth. Yeah, and I think like it does um, lead to what I what I very much identify with and participate in is this idea of like, well, where, like, why did not, 
why didn't God protect those children on that day? And I, and I mean, I have that question. It is a faithful question. It is a holy question. It is, I mean, for whatever it's worth, it is a fair question. Like scripture is filled with prayers of people praying for God to protect them and filled with God answering those prayers. Right. So there's nothing wrong with that question at all, at all. And, and also and, how long, oh Lord, how long? Right. I mean, so just to, to be mad and to be like, that is, that is a faith filled response. Mm-hmm. And, and what kind of God would you worship in if you didn't ask that question? Right. I mean, sure. a God who would sit idly by and watch that happen is a, is a horrific God. So sure. I, that's a faithful question. It's a question that honors God is a question that I have zero answer to. And I also think it does betray how deeply we do sort of think of as like, well, we're just sitting here passively waiting and, you know, sometimes God shows up and saves the day and then disappears again. And, and who knows? And, and it does, I think, show us how little we have understood the radical nature of what Pentecost means that when we say like, well, where was Jesus that day? The body of Jesus is us. So, um, if you know, you weren't, I wasn't there, you weren't there. We as a community, the church was not there. And so what does that mean in terms of if we have a church where people believe in Jesus, but are not filled with the spirit. And so then are not led in, in ways that don't make sense, um, you know, in a quote, natural, um, framework, you know, the church isn't led to do things like, hey, there's a family on the edge of town and the mom is really struggling with addiction and the son is isolated and people are picking on him. And like, where is the body of Christ in response to a family like that? And again, this isn't to cast blame on anyone. And we all have people in our neighborhoods that we are scared of and don't you know want to protect ourselves from. But to say, you know, what our, what the first saints understood is, you know, God sent them into relationships where they were radically vulnerable towards other people. And, and, you know, I, I think, again, I, I am all for, if I, if I could get rid of every, <laughs> every AK-15 in this whole country, I would do it tomorrow. I think it's faithful. I think if the body of Christ understood who Jesus was, we would all agree, right? So I don't, I, you know, I'm not saying that there's not I think a faithful political action, but I'm also saying that's not our lane. Our lane is how are we loving people in our community? And I, I'm got zero judgment for any church, not loving its neighbors. Well, because I'm, we really struggle to love our neighbors well too. And like, how do we love people who are vulnerable, honestly, who are not meeting our emotional needs? Like I think a lot of times as a church, we can be in relationship with people who like we're like, oh, this person's great because they have contacts on the city council and this person's great because they have a bunch of kids that will swell our youth group and this person's great because they're an amazing musician or this person's just so sweet and I just love having her around. But how are we at being in relationship with people who are far from Jesus and don't meet our emotional needs, right? So like this person is horrific. Like I can't, like it's really difficult for me to be around them because they don't think I'm that great and they're not deferential to me at all. Like can I be in an open-ended, wondering relationship with that person. I'm not saying that we need to sign ourselves up for abuse or, you know, but can, are we actually willing to be in relationship with people who are not in relationship with Jesus and to interact with them with integrity and, and 
but also with with forbearance and love or are we only willing to show christian love to the people who already show up in ways that feel very lovable to us like that i think is the question of saying like we're in the middle of an epidemic of disconnection and loneliness loneliness and enmity and fear and and how are we in our own spheres of influence saying hey is there a way that i can serve selflessly self-givingly to someone and and let the results belong to god yes if christians ask the question what do you think heaven is like many would say things like there's peace there's love people are getting along there's no ethnic tension no one's hungry uh, no one is addicted uh, there's no violence. And one of the ways I'm beginning to understand Pentecost is that the Spirit of God is poured out on the believers of Jesus to live that way, right. to live this new creation life, even now as we anticipate the full coming of the kingdom. And so that would include... Um, being in relationship with people who are not yet believers in a way that is love and grace. And um, uh, uh, we become an open door for them into God's family. And I think also just being able to, you know, not expect the kingdom of God to come in through, you know, a presidential election whereby the Congress does whatever and it's this huge act and swoop and once for all and it's all done, yes. right? I mean, to be able to say like, well, if, if I believe that these are the values of the kingdom of God, then where are like the small, stupid, failure-filled ways in my own sphere of influence that I'm trying to walk that out, feeling like an idiot, feeling like it's not going to make any difference, feeling like, you know, I, I'm, I'm apt to really fail at this, but to say like, okay, but like, even in that process of failing at it, I am going to be growing spiritually. And also I know that, I, you know, that God accepts imperfect gifts and that God, in fact, delights in displaying the power of God in imperfect gifts. And, you know, the other thing that strikes me always about um, just about the people of God and, and the way we talk about um, the way scripture talks about the people of God, and you alluded to it when you're talking about, you know, Jesus, um, you know, the angels ascending and descending, which also, if you, if you're, if you think in scripture will then pull you back to Jacob having the vision and, you know, the, and in the Hebrew Bible, we're always talking about like, well, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And what I think is really important, and often the people of Israel are, are called, you know, Jacob so often. And I think it's really important to recognize like Jacob was a bad dude. Not very like, nice. He, he, was, he was, he was, you know, he was fearful and he was selfish and he was grasping and he was taking all he could take. And, and I think, again, when you were raised up in this like Western dualism, you're like, well, this doesn't make sense. Esau was good and Jacob was bad. And why has God chosen Jacob? And, you know, and I, and, and that's not a completely ridiculous way to read scripture, right? I mean, there is this Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And I don't, I don't really understand the whole hating Esau part. I would need to do a deep word study on that. But I mean, A, we know that Esau wasn't rejected by God, but B, 
this idea that Jacob in his brokenness was centered in the people that God chose really should get rid of this idea that we have that God chooses the spiritual elite or God chooses us because we're superior. I mean, to say that we're children of Jacob means like, oh no, that grasping self-preservation at all costs, you know, in justifies the means like that. That's part of being human. And I don't think that God is in any way okay with that, but I think God doesn't want to destroy people who are caught in that. God wants to heal them. Right. And I think if you look at you know, the, the ancestral stories in Genesis, like it's a, it's a very long and organic generational process, but to sort of say like that vision of, of there being an interconnectedness between the realm of God and the realm of man, like that doesn't start with Jesus, which would make sense to us because, well, Jesus, perfect, holy son of God, you know, like, okay, well, of course, you you know, but to say like, no, that's, that came out with Jacob and Jacob was like, like really the worst of us. And what that shows me is that we don't need to deny or reject um, our, our, our just most broken and sinful parts of us because God sees and God still chooses us. Now, God doesn't leave us there, but, but that is, that's part, that's the center of what it means. Like the center of being God's people means sometime you're like Abram and God calls and says, go, and you've got no idea what's going on. And just in this incredible burst of, you know, courage and faith, you, you go, um, and, and you got some ups and downs after that. And, and that's part of our heritage, but also part of our heritage is, like we are living in this fallen world and it brings out the worst in us and God isn't surprised. Um, God, God comes near to us and, and God is in the midst of us. And so I think this idea of like Pentecost being, I don't want us to like get serious about making a plan to fix the world for God, but I also don't want us to just think like, well, I'm just going to sit under my tree and, and wait for God to, you know, zoom down from heaven and whatever to say like, no, I'm going to walk in my weakness and in my feebleness and in my foolishness and do things that seem like a waste of time and seem too small to make any impact. But that's somehow in this, in scripture, like that's the scale of where the kingdom comes. And that is how the center of our story isn't us. The center of our story is God reclaiming what is God's own. So I think for me to say, like, we've got to get more serious about being filled by the Holy Spirit and having a power in us that isn't of us and having a wisdom in us that isn't of us. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit is not to be better than people that you think aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. And to be filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean you have like special elite tricks that you display in worship. It means <laughs> you um, are are often willing to do something that seems like a foolish waste of time to, to take an act that you know is faithful, even though it seems like it, it will be foolish, and and that you have this deep sense that, um, you know, you you want to have God be at the center of your life and not your own ego and preferences and um, and and desires. So that's it. We've run out of words. We're done. <laughs> Thank y'all for listening. If you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derida Prez, you should go to their website, D-E-R-I-T-A-Prez.org. You should check out um, the podcast of Yolanda's Messages, which is on the Podbean uh, site. 
And you should check out their YouTube channel, the Derrida Press um, in Charlotte on YouTube, and you can watch worship and be part of that community. Or you can show up and worship with them on Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock is our new time starting this Sunday at 11 o'clock. Um, and if you want to find out more about what's going on at the Grove, you are about to turn off the recording. He really just that that man just no, went to turn off the not. recording. Okay, whatever. Um, you can see what God is doing at the Grove. You can go to um, thegrovecharlotte.org. Um, it's a green tree. There's a lot of groves in the world. Um, and you can check out our podcast, which is um, on the Grove Church podcast on iTunes or wherever you get wherever. your podcasts, wherever. And our YouTube channel as well for messages and videos. Um, or you could join us for worship at 10. Uh, but you won't get out in time to join Yolando as well. But that's okay. Um, you are uh, wildly welcome. Either place. And we hope that y'all have a great spirit-filled week. Bye.